Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sender with Gospel App Ministries. Look, this has been a wonderful journey through the Sermon on the Mount. This will be the last podcast. It's been about a year. And the name of it is Sand or Rock. I mean, how can you be sure? All right, here we are. First and goal on the one-foot line. We're behind by six points. One second left. We've got this. We've got the best offensive line, the very best running back in the league. It's a slam dunk if we only execute. And that's how I'm feeling right now. I want to I want to execute this game-winning podcast on the server of the mount. And to bring it all home, Jesus will use a parable. And he uses parables a lot during his short ministry. Therefore, people who have ears to hear and eyes to see, and both of those things are God-sourced. So, uh, so often parables can be interpreted in a couple of ways. It's for the audience he has targeted. Once again, context matters. Context, context, context. So he says, build your house on rock, not sand. And that's what we're told. That's how we've said it. Building your house, your life, your identity, your faith on the principles that Jesus has been speaking about. That's what you've heard, no doubt. Then you will be blessed when the storms come, the things life throw at you and your brain throws at you and your eyes throw at you and social media throws at you. So when that happens, don't be angry. Don't lust. Don't get divorced. Don't hoard money. Don't pray to be to be noticed. Don't oh, and do forgive like you want God to forgive you. Be perfect, in fact, as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> and that's rock living. Well, yeah, if you can do it, but I've never been able to pull all those things off. So, is that really rock living, or subtly, is that sandy? I'm going to try to convince you, using this parable, that just the opposite is true. That, ah, boy, it sure sounds like that's living on a rock, but it's actually sand dwelling. So what does it look like to build your house upon a rock? Well, here we are. We're in this final podcast. And I'm going to suggest, no judgment, that we have confused what Jesus is saying in context and are flailing around, well-meaning, around sandy soil, not even near rocky soil most of the time. And look, I'll just point to, here's the question. How's it, how's it going for you? How's your Christian walk going for you? How's your relationship with God going for you? And it's not too late. No judgment, no shame here. This is the first day of the rest of your life. You've heard that, right? So we're going to be talking about it. Pass it on to friends you know that are struggling with Christianity, with organized religion, with institutionalized religion. Definitely get this to the ex-evangelicals. I think it's going to make a difference. But first... A word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Well, we've spent over a year on the Sermon on the Mount. We've looked at it from a different lens than most teachers, most expositors do. And remember, I said at the very beginning, so many Christians told me it. And I said, hey, we're going to do the Sermon on the Mount. They said, man, they don't want to hear another series on the thing because every time they listen, it makes them feel like failures, like God is disappointed in them. And I get it. Jesus ramps up the expectations of God. I mean, not really, but he communicates the expectations of God higher than, than we had thought. Be perfect, he says, even as your heavenly father is perfect. I mean, what? Wait, 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 wait. It's, I can hear somebody say it. Well, wait a second. I heard that the Greek word for perfect can also be translated whole. There we go. That's better, right? Really? I mean, so being whole, even as your heavenly father is whole, is that better? I mean, how are you going to do that? Is that yoga? Is that meditation? Look, I'm I don't, I'm not thinking that's a lot better. It's not. It's impossible to do that. That's the point in Jesus's rhetoric. Uh, and look, is Jesus using his first audience, this this meeting, to make the people who are already cultural failures? Is is he trying to make them feel even worse? I don't think that's likely. Remember the audience? The poor in spirit? And they know it. That's why they came to him instead of their own temples, instead of the temple in Jerusalem. They got nowhere else to go. The religious leaders knew they were the poor in spirit. They are those who were the cultural relational outies, the unclean, the uh, unrighteous, the people of the dirt. No one in that group would have expected to hear anything positive from God, I mean, yeah, judgment and criticism and damnation, but, you know, maybe to point out how how big a disappointment they've been or how, if it, for the Jews of the crowd, how shamed Abraham would be of them. I mean, you can hear it. But look, they're desperate. What more could God do to, the, do to them? They're already at the bottom of the cultural food chain. They're already isolated. They're already unclean, and they, they, they can't fix it. And it's not that they are all poor, meaning lack of money, go back and listen to that podcast. That's, that's not the syntam. That's not this combination poor and spirit. Some of them probably are well off, but the, they're suffering. And the principal suffering of these poor in spirit is not that they can't pay rent in time or invest in retirement funds. It's that they struggle with shame. It's a toxic shame, a global sense of failure of the whole self that sinks it penetrates into their inner being. Anne Lamott calls it an inner sense of disfigurement. They feel already that they're not worthy of God's attention, much less his love and pride. That's who Jesus is speaking to. And as I've been saying, it's, a tr it's tragic to imagine that he's giving them a new bar to achieve, a new list of honeydews. That would be the pinnacle of indifference, and Jesus is anything but that. At the end of the day, the poor in spirit have learned to, as best they can, rely on themselves, their tricks, their trades, to try to find some worth wherever they can, even in dangerous, destructive places. They may have to wear a mask. They may have to self-medicate. They may have to just endure loneliness. And all of that comes from internalized 
toxicity. And believe me, they won't trust the man. They're tired of taking criticism and lectures. And so I think it's poignant to note here in the Sermon on the Mount that they're not named. In the stories, characters who don't have name, that tells you something. It tells you that they don't have a lot of perceived value. They don't even have a name. They're nameless until Jesus. All right, we're at the capstone of the Sermon on the Mount, this parable. If you've been with me for a time, you've heard me say that the Sermon on the Mount is the cornerstone of the entire Gospel of Matthew. The Beatitudes are the cornerstone of the Sermon on the Mount. And the very first Beatitude is the cornerstone of the whole thing, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, track me. If you recall, when he said this first beatitude, present tense, theirs is, he was saying something that none of the poor in spirit would have imagined that he would say or anyone else would ever say to them for that matter. Look, the scribes, the Pharisees would never have said this to this group. Jesus is clearly opening the door to an intimate relationship with God to failed, unclean Audis. Jews and Gentiles, unbelievers all, people who would have believed that they were cursed by whatever god or goddesses they cling to, they would have believed they were unclean, they were unrighteous. This is what they would have been told and would have come to believe about themselves. Even if, even if they could turn their life around, it, it would have, you know, they'd already messed it up. And it would have taken a Herculean effort beyond their capacity to turn it around anyway. I mean, even if they immediately chose, if you could even do this, to choose to stop being angry. And if you go back to those podcasts, we went to the neuroscience. It's not not controlled by a prefrontal cortex. You become angry. But even if they were able to choose to stop being angry and lustful, if they began to forgive like crazy, to care about others as much as... They wanted others to care about them. And by the way, including Pharisees, even if they didn't worry about their stuff and kept investing in heavenly Wells Fargo, whatever that means, even if they really did start depending upon God daily, they've already messed it up so much for so long. How would they ever know if they did enough, whatever enough means? Are you tracking? Surely, surely they would start off by obeying Jesus' Jesus's command, right? Clear command. Here's step number one. Go to the temple, make a sin offering, right? Oh, wait. He didn't say that. How about go and tithe to the... Mm, nope, didn't say that either. How about finding John the Baptist and get getting baptized into repentance? Uh, by the way, likely some of them, many on that hillside had already done that. Go back to one of the first podcasts of the series. Or... Go to the priest and see if you're clean or get circumcised. Nope, nope, nope. Jesus threw the gates open big time to these regular people. And all they had to do was build a house upon a rock. Here's what we know. These survivors, the poor in spirit, who likely have learned at the end of the day, you can only count on yourself, your efforts, your begging, your stealing, or whatever, Here's what they got. Here's how they understood, it seems, by their actions, what building the house on a rock meant to them in that context, in their language. They followed Jesus. So when Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, that does does them, doing them, will be like a wise man or woman who builds his house upon the rock. And it would seem in context, they got, they understood what he meant, Right, they're going to do. They're going to do this. 
They understood that meant to follow him, whatever that meant in their context, because that's what they did. They didn't hire a contractor to go and find rocks to build houses on. They understood that, among other things that he meant, it, the big deal was to follow him, to become his disciple, to depend upon him. Matthew 8, 1. This is after the parable. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So, back in 425, where great crowds came to listen to him, and Matthew 8, 1, great crowds followed him, the exact same Greek. Matthew 425 and 8, 1. Narratively, narratively, he didn't lose a one, according to Matthew, and I mean, likely that's not what happened. Probably some got sick and some were, I mean, some couldn't follow, whatever. But Matthew would have us believe, the way he's telling his story, that this was a social revolution. This was a miracle. Everybody in this tough, loose, beat-up menagerie, multicultural, multisexual, multidemographic, multi-faith, unbelievers all, they followed Jesus equally. They became equal Jesus followers. Jesus became the high priest of this new church of the poor in spirit. So what does Jesus say to wrap up this message? What can be said to bring it all home? Jesus is going to tell a parable. Now, you know, I will tell you that if you don't have Jesus' eyes to see, you're going to misinterpret the parable, just like all the parables. And in fact, I'm going to suggest this is what's happened historically with this parable. And we're going to dig into it. This would probably be a good place to take our another word from our sponsors. Short. Uh, enjoy. We'll be back as soon as we can. All right, Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then, Jesus says, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and, and does not do them, whatever those are, right, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. All right. I know what you're thinking. I want to be that man or woman, boy or girl who builds their house, their lives, identities, securities, their hopes, their relationships, their sexualities upon Jesus's teaching. I must turn listening into actions. I must choose to not get angry. I must choose to forgive that person who really, really hurt me, disgraced me, embarrassed me, betrayed me. I must choose to not lust. I must choose to not get divorced. To I must choose to be perfect, even as God is perfect, <laughs> right? But no, I mean, I can't do that this side of heaven. I haven't. I will not. I've already heard that podcast. I can't. I won't. And I'm not sure I can even see that rock from, from my distance. And now that I'm being a bit honest... I can't not be angry. Lusting seems to come pretty easy and naturally, even before I realize it. It's happened before my prefrontal cortex goes, wait, 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 wait a minute. And then forgiving that person who really wounded me. I mean, I'm, I'm a recognized expert on how to forgive. And I'm telling you, your brain will work against you forgiving. That's how you're created. Doesn't that make a lot of sense? Check out forgivingpath.com. 
a two-hour online journey, and you'll see what I mean, but we will help you. We've seen great benefit, but we'll show you how. So forgiving others on my own, can't seem to do that either. So I agree, I should build upon that rock, but all I'm seeing is sand. I'm compelled to agree with Jesus that what little I am pulling off on my sandy base is not going to last. It won't withstand the beat down that the world gives, that the relationships give, that well-meaning people give, that even Christians give, even the law gives. So Jesus, what am I to do? I can't even find a rock to follow me. The number one thing for the poor in spirit to do is to follow him. Trust him. Depend upon him. To find their sense of identity and worth, sexuality, all of those things from his eyes, his gaze, his embrace. So Jesus is saying, to, to put it in other words, I haven't come to show you a new way to live well. New guidelines that if you do them, you will feel better about yourself and others. New list. I have come to rescue you from this fallen, dangerous world, and that includes your critical inner spirit and your midbrain. I promised, and remember in these Beatitudes, once you start doing righteousness, once you start following me, this twisted place is going to ramp up the persecution, just like it will to me. It will not appreciate your new life. So, You need to learn now how to actively and daily depend upon me, my spirit, my height and width and length and depth of my love for you. Follow me. And I'll give you my spirit. I'll give you a new heart and it will make a difference. People will notice. Not perfectly, that's heaven. So when I say build your house upon a rock, I'm not speaking about a new doctrine or a list of to-dos. I'm speaking about me, my arms entwined around you. Kisses on your cheeks. I am that rock. Me. Look, it's, it's, not, it's not about knowing me. G- Satan knows all about me, and yet that knowledge has done him very little good. Come to me, all poor in spirit, all who thirst for more, for more worth, more identity, more joy, more laughter, a dent in your loneliness, uh, that fractured longing for identity. Come, come into my arms. Come into my embrace. Ask for my spirit's power to, that can make you feel this love, make you experience it right now. And that's when you start building upon a real rock. Anything else is sand. Even good things, sand. Anything else is bad fruit. Anything else is wolves in sheep's clothing. It's the wide path that leads to death. So, if you're following me, just kick this around. Real building houses on the rock is not about doing more right things more religious things, more enough of anything. It's depending upon our only source of real righteousness. Discipleship, following Jesus, is not about becoming more like Jesus. It's depending more on Jesus. And by the way, secondarily, you'll end up actually showing love to people because that's his heart. And that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount and highlighted by this parable Don't leave the hillside thinking that you need to turn your life around and be more like Jesus. That's sand thinking. It sounds so good, but that's sand thinking. Take a breath and dwell on it. Kick it around. Breathe. Breathe again. That is kind of what the Pharisees were saying. The Bible says that this is them. This is their voice. Righteous tree, right? The one who does Torah will be firmly planted and bear good fruit. So Psalm 1, for instance. So then they would say, 
Do the Torah. Lean into doing Torah. Here's a list of 656 rules. Do the very best you can. Hope that God will see that you're really trying. And be gracious. And Jesus isn't saying they, they are not right. We should do all of the 656. Period. God says so. But you haven't. None of you. None of us. We won't. We can't. So the path is broken. And then the storms of life come. You're going to have a bad day. You're going to say something. You're going to feel something. And you're going to feel ashamed, which leads you to overreact. And then you might have another bad day. Then self-medicating because you don't want to think about your righteous resolutions that have crashed. And then swoosh, your your house crashes into the ocean. And that shows that it was actually sand. Or... You can build your house on the rock, Jesus, his embrace, his love, his actions on your behalf. He's been the only person who has ever lived Torah perfectly. And he not only has done this righteousness, he is the incarnation of all righteousness. And because of that, he rightly earned all of the Torahic covenant blessings that righteousness earns. Read Deuteronomy 28 to 30. He's done them all. None of us have. For all have sinned. There is no one righteous. No, not one. So in the, so if you are a follower of his, his record of righteousness has already been imputed into your bio, into your CV, into your record. It's going to stand up in your trial, whatever that looks like. And along with that comes all the blessings that that righteousness has earned, including all the love in the universe from God. So legally... In a very, very narrow human point of view, God has to love you. Look, meaning, he loves you with all the love that he has for his son and the spirit and the son of the spirit. Feel for him. It's yours. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. That's the rock. Uh, you, when you start getting shots of that love, you will notice a difference. When you access the power that comes from God through the spirit in your inner being and begin to feel the height and width and length and depth of the love of Jesus for you, it changes you a little. You feel loved. You feel less fear, less shame, less beat up. You feel like you have a name. You will want to forgive a little bit more. In your context, you might want to hug a little bit more often. Think of the needs of others a little bit more. You'll begin to look a little like Jesus, a little or a lot. Why? Because you're building day by day upon Jesus the rock. A day by day new dependence upon his power, his love. And here's another difference. You can depend upon the Torah and your ability to work harder and, uh, and enough to do Torah, enough to get God's attention, enough, you know, maybe his favor. All of that sand thinking. Or you can depend upon Jesus, his work 2,000 years ago, and his spirit in your inner being, and you can begin to feel more loved and more loving. That's the rock. That's two different paths. Am I right? Jesus was teaching as if he were the authority even over the Torah, and he was. The Pharisees were slaves to Torah. They were sand dwellers. Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Well, here's where my head goes. Think, I think of the poor in spirit, Jesus' audience, then and today. Why in the world would they trust a Jewish rabbi? I mean, they couldn't get into the synagogue. Many, most... 
wouldn't they be emotionally guarded, mentally guarded to not trust, to not listen to, you know, to not embrace this stuff? Why would we take another risk of getting hurt again, of falling short again, of being mocked by family again uh, and tr follow this guy? I think it's safer to stay put. It's working. We're surviving. It isn't great. But hey, the attitude number one, the, the capstone, the kingdom of heaven is yours. All right, let me unpack that. Remember what I said back uh, when we did that, that podcast, the Sintam kingdom of heaven is not about a castle or a moat or knights and kings and dragons. It's, it's a metaphor for God and, and all of God. So you, the poor in spirit who didn't have God, who've been told that you were distasteful to God, that God would never come close. He won't touch you. He certainly won't smile at you. He's disgusted and ashamed when he sees you. Nope. Jesus looks at you eye contact, attunement, and, and he loves you. And you can see it. He loves you so much, he's humiliating himself to pursue you on this hillside, to touch you, to express his love for you publicly. You. God's yours. You're God's. It's a marriage covenant. Think of the intimacy. It's an expression of the heart of God for broken failures, the unclean, the sinners, the failed. What makes them so blessed, enviable, is he then makes that person feel it. I want you to hear that. He makes you experience his love. You couldn't before. You were poor in spirit. So on that hillside, God embraces them right there on the spot. How? Maybe the spirit. That's how he embraced, embraced me. Maybe it was what they saw and felt in Jesus's eyes, his face. Remember, this was not just some human. This was, a, this was God in the flesh. There's some power there, right? When you see God, Something's going to happen. They felt something, no doubt, that they had never felt before, at least not in a long, long time. They felt honored. They felt loved. They felt liked. They felt appreciated. They felt like they actually had worth and substance. They had an identity. They had a name. They had some glory. They became people of righteousness, adored by God. They became enviable, and they felt it. So many Christians I talk to struggle to feel that. It's almost like we, we, we have been taught, well, I feel it once when I was saved, I'll feel it again. Now, eh, my expectations are a little dicey. No, we need to stop that. So these people on the hillside, no doubt some subjected to chronic abuse over the years, they began to experience their inner sense of disfigurement, remember Lamott, being gently reshaped. They began to feel a little or a lot worthy of God's attention. They began to believe. Believe what? That God loves them as they are. They began to hear. So they would hear what Jesus is talking about, and they would hear it differently than most of us have taught. They would begin to hear Jesus' words, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm telling you, that's going to change a person. Not perfectly, that's heaven. But we know it changed them because they followed and that's the only reason that I can imagine that all of the, these poor in spirit would follow. Otherwise, the risk would have been too high of getting hurt again, being mocked again. Oh, there's that person again. They'll do anything to anybody. The one thing they so desperately needed to capture their attention was to feel loved as they were on that hillside. Not to know they were loved, but to actually experience it. That's the beginning of building upon a rock. Feeling the love of Jesus for you as you are will ignite a feeling of love for others from you, a desire to do good for others from you. Not perfect, that's heaven, but it's noticeable. That's the nature of rock dwellers. 
because you begin to feel Jesus' love for others through you. Right? So first they begin to feel the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for them, and that bubbles over to love for others, wash, rinse, repeat. Sand dwellers, man, they're struggling. Do enough right in order to get God to notice you, and maybe you'll get blessed, whatever enough looks like. Right? So bottom line, on your own, sand dweller, you can only achieve Pharisee status. Good on you, by the way. That's a high bar, I mean, honestly. But you will never know if it's enough. And that internal disfigurement remains and negatively motivates you and drives you. So good luck. And I would suggest if you've been doing this, you know it's not working. How's it going for you? In his power, depending upon Jesus right now, tomorrow, the next day, you've got a shot at changing the world, dancing more, laughing out loud more, forgiving, finding peace that passes understanding, getting deeper into relationships, just being happier. It's your choice. How? Ask. You've heard a couple of podcasts on that now. Go to Ephesians 3, 14 to 21 and model what Paul is saying. Ask for the power that comes from God through the Holy Spirit in your inner being to make you feel the love of Christ right now. So I'm begging you to pass this on. So many Christians are just flagging. They're building their house on sand, thinking they're standing on rock. But history will tell. I don't think it's going to end well. Now, it will really end well. They're Christians. They're going to heaven, but experiencing it now, man, we've confused people. So pass it on. Email the link. Put it on your social media. They will thank you. I'm not so much speaking about being saved here. It's more about how you and I follow Jesus day by day. So much so it's obvious. Here's John Calvin. Uh, this is my adaptive translation uh, in uh, his Institute on Faith. Listen to this. I, I think this is good. I'll explain what he's saying. In truth, there is no other way for a man or woman to approach God but in some act of changing grace. He or she now believes that God adores them, even likes them. And so now we can say that the typical statement of faith, quote, I believe that God is truth, close quote, is true, but woefully lacking in preciseness and hope. It is, it is only part of what we are to embrace. Add to that, quote, I for some reason now believe that truly God loves me as I am. Close quote. It's his faithfulness to that benevolence towards me that has caused my knees to shake in joy, no longer fear. I am certain of this new relationship because God's true word proclaims it, and I've come to believe it. It's all due to Christ's work alone, of course. Apart from his righteousness and death, all I could ever expect is God's wrath and hatred for eternity. Without true, ongoing, daily, heaven-sourced faith... I would never look into God's eyes willingly. My beat-up brain was so riddled with doubt, and it constantly wavered. I was blind, walking in great darkness, not light. I could not rest in my theological confessions. They had no capacity to make me believe that God now likes me as I am. I did not look up, up, up on my own power. No, the revelation of God miraculously shone light on my sight, confirmed the truth in my inner being, so now we can define this God-sourced faith. True faith is a firm and sure knowledge of the divine favor specifically toward me, founded on revealed absolute truth, specifically the profound promise of life in and through Christ's work on our behalf, revealed to our beings and sealed on our heart by the Holy Spirit. All right, it's a lot. I like it. It's a great theologian's confession that he 
was beginning to learn to depend upon the ongoing embrace of God's Spirit. He was beginning to learn that he could not depend upon right theology for healing of inner disfigurement and, and becoming less poor in spirit. He had to actually depend upon God's love, powerfully revealed through Christ's work, through the Holy Spirit in his inner being. I love it. So key, Jesus is, of course, right. We should do everything he said. We should love God with all of our hearts all the time. We should love others, even those who have hurt us. <laughs> Good luck. And we haven't, I haven't, you haven't, you will not, I will not, period. So now what? Well, one, we need rescue. If you're a Jesus follower, you've already had that rescue. Two, you can move forward by acknowledging your need for the power that comes from God alone. Ephesians 3, to begin to feel the height and width and length and depth of this love for you and others. That's to experience it. Not just know it, but experience it. Three, the more you experience that embrace of God, of Jesus and the Spirit, you're going to find yourself doing more other-oriented stuff. You will. You'll worship Him more. You'll be happier. You'll lean into becoming more and more openly dependent upon Jesus and the Spirit. That's what it means to follow. That's what it means to take the narrow path, eat good fruit, build your house on the rock. Anything less than that is sand, wolves, broad path, bad fruit, and looks a lot more like the people who killed Jesus and those who followed, right? It's also dangerously heretical, even though at its core is this, this desire, well-meaning desire to do law. It's a disguised path of righteousness that says all of the right things and can quote multiple passages to back up its charter, and yet it is a wolf in sheep's clothing. So, what do you think? You've heard this podcast, some others. Give me feedback. Bill at gospel-rant.com. We appreciate the feedback we've gotten. Thank you for speaking your piece. It is a rant. It is a dialogue as much as we can do. Love to hear what you're thinking. Well, that's the end of the Sermon on the Mount podcast series. Over a year. Lots of fun. Thanks for playing. Well, what now? Well, starting next podcast, we'll be doing a special three-podcast series on Valentine's. What's love got to do with it? It's, I think it's seriously groundbreaking, and it's in sync with what we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, for sure. So the first podcast on February 12th, your brain, how does your brain do love? That's how God created it. How does it fall in love, out of love? Why do... People in love go stupid, you know, OCD. They can't stop thinking about the person. They can't be reasonable. <laughs> so we'll dig into a little neuroscience. Lots of fun. Podcast number two. Uh, we've inherited much of our philosophy of love from the ancient Romans, not so much from Paul and the Bible. Did you know that the Romans were actually afraid of love? They tried to legislate it. They did a very poor job, as we'll see. But yeah, and we've inherited a lot of that. You'll see the difference that it makes today and why we're so confused. Podcast number three, well, then what does God's love actually look like? What's different about it? We're supposed to love each other that way, but what does it look like? Uh, what does it feel like? And you've heard that God's love is agape, is that right? Well, I'm going to say yes and no, and you're going to be jazzed by the answer. Pass this on to someone who struggles with love or relationship or no relationship and not being loved is very healing. Great news. Uh and after that, I think we're headed, God willing, into the Song of Songs. My first book, The Kiss of God, co-authored with a very, very talented author, Colleen Pepper. Check it out on Amazon, The Kiss of God. It's an amazing picture of the pursuing love of God. 
the very thing we we're talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Great stuff. It's and I'm telling you, it's different than you've heard. Other stuff. We've launched a YouTube channel, Good Enough Parent. Check that out as well. Subscribe. Uh, we'll be putting weekly videos to, to help parents, uh, children of all ages, become more good enough parents. So go to YouTube and search Good Enough Parent, and you'll see it black and white. Um, and, and let me know, Bill at gospel-app.com, if you can't find the link. Uh, it's related to the Good Enough Parent online journey. As of this podcast, it's still free for parents, frustrated parents of teens and tweens. Participants get 15 short biblical parent video tips, one a day for 15 days. It's changed lives. There's nothing like it out there. Check out uh, the video, the introduction video on our landing page, goodenoughparent.online. Goodenoughparent, one word, dot online. It's free. Also, if your small group is looking for fresh Easter or Lit studies, check out the journey a seven-video uh, lesson study through uh, Easter. Very popular, very instructive, big-time dialogue, any level of faith. You can find it at gospel-app.com forward slash engage. It's called The Journey. You can get it on Amazon as well. Engage colon The Journey. Thanks again to lifeaudio.com for their platform and their support. We'll see you at the next podcast. Take heart, child of God. The content we feed our minds will eventually show up in our lives. If we feed our minds the lies and confusion of this world, our lives will begin to reflect worldliness. But if we feed our minds the truth of the gospel, our lives will start to reflect the heart and character of Jesus. I'm John Stonge, and each week I host the Dwell on These Things podcast, where we take a deep look at the Word of God and learn what it means to apply it to our lives. We don't skip difficult passages, and we don't gloss over the truth. If you're looking for a show that will put your mind in a better place and help you understand God's Word with more clarity, you can listen to the Dwell on These Things podcast at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.